If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the third chapter of the book of Romans, New Testament book of Romans, page 797. And in just a moment, we're going to begin reading from verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. If you were with us last time, I, I think you remember that I said that many people say this is the most important paragraph ever written in, in human history. So just feel the weight of that and the joy of that as well. If, Sorry, it went down wrong. Verse 21, Romans chapter 3. But now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption of That came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And every time you see the word justice or just, it's the root word there is righteous. So they're almost interchangeable. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, please have mercy and give grace to me as the one who speaks and mercy and grace on those before me and others as those who would listen. Accomplish all your purposes Bring glory to yourself alone. Save the lost and reassure the saved as you teach us by your spirit from this text. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. If the God of the Bible, the one true and living God, was only a God of justice, then the Bible would be an incredibly short book and our human history, it would be just as short. Again, if the God of the Bible, that one, the one true and living God, was only a God of justice, justice, that unbiased, correct sentencing of what is due based on what has been done, that he, if you look at your Bibles, verse 24, that if he had no grace, verse 24, verse 25, no forbearance, no patient endurance, that's verse 25, then the Bible would be an incredibly short book and our human history just as short. And surely these verses bring some of this to light. Now, the last time we were together, we began by acknowledging a passage like this is thick, and it's packed really tight, and to understand it, we need to let the the words tell their whole story, because for one reason, what is being said here is absolutely foundational, meaning everything about everything, and I hope you understand this, everything about everything in our life and, and eternity, uh, our forgiveness received and enjoyed and extended, everything having to do with our relationship with God forever and others spring from or source from what is being said here. So sometimes when we work through something like this, I get a little nervous because I, I think, okay, 
I hope you don't think that, like there's two different gospels. There's the one gospel, your sins are forgiven. You know, that's great, Joe. Appreciate that. Thank you for keep saying that. But then like there's another version where, you know, what am I going to do about my mortgage, uh, my student loans? How am I going to relate to my family, my marriage, uh, the way we treat each other, the way we speak to each other, holiness? So, so there's grace there for forgiveness, but everything else is just like, you know, works. You're going to have to put the pedal to the metal, and, and none of this stuff really matters. So you're forgiven, but as if they're two different things, and they do not meet. Yes, they do. Even if you think just on the most basic level, your prayers could never be heard if it's not for what Paul is describing here. So this is everything. So if you're like, if we get this wrong, everything will be off. This is our plumb line. So we said the point what Paul was driving home in those two and a half chapters beginning, if you see it there in your Bible, verse 18 of chapter 1, is basically to show that outside of the gospel, outside of Jesus Christ, Jew, Gentile, you, me, we are all damned. However, one of the things he said was in the case of the Jews, they mistakenly believed that they can and they were earning God's favor through their obedience rather than accepting Christ's righteousness. The gift, verse 22, do you see it there? The gift of a clean and perfect record that is given to those, verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Meaning the Jews were relating to God through their own obedience and not the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. I wonder if that ever happens to us. And that's very sobering in the sense that it's, it's so possible to be very enthusiastic about God and about morality and yet be unconverted, which is the opening part of Romans 10. Meaning the foundational question, the ultimate question we must ask ourselves is not whether or not we are zealous. Rather, are we trusting in Christ as described here at all points for our salvation, for our righteousness, for our future, and therefore our standing with God? That question is everything. Indeed, at the end of our time together, we're going to take communion and communion is a sacrament that Jesus Christ told his church to take. And what does communion proclaim? Let me tell you what it does not proclaim. It does not proclaim our personal victory over sin. When we take communion, we're not giving each other's high fives. What it does proclaim is the new covenant. That's Christ's righteousness, victory over sin. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. it proclaims the Lord's death. Sins are forgiven. Because of the Lord's death. So I hope you hear that as one of the things that you hear when you receive communion as a Christian. So last time we worked through three of four promised headings. Our first heading, you can see this at the back of the worship folder, is God's righteousness in its relationship to the Old Testament. That was fundamental, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So the expression, but now, it just jumps off the page. Something new has come. And the new is not that God's righteousness is a different kind of righteousness in the Old Testament. You know, that God has eased up things since the Old Testament. Rather, he has accomplished his purpose from all eternity so that now God's righteousness has been made known a different way apart from the law. And Paul said there, the Old Testament spoke of it. You see it there at the end of verse 21. It's been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. 
His point is, is that us not being good enough for God is not a new thing. It's actually a very, very old thing. It's a large part of the Old Testament story, so much so that even the best of men, I mean, name them out, David and, and Daniel and Solomon, the best of men, men at best. And God's righteousness, Paul describes here in Romans, is revealed in the Old Testament, was foretold in the Old Testament, and now it's been made known apart from the law. Because what does the law do? It reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals God's absolute perfection and character, but also the impossibility of it giving us the righteousness that God requires. Because we cannot keep the law perpetually and perfectly. And if you break, break one, Genesis 3, it's done. If you break one, James chapter 2, you've broken them all. But now, this is our second point, but now God's righteousness is available to all. So there's no racial distinction. There's no regional distinction. It doesn't matter where you're from, what coast, what place. It's available to all, but only by faith. Verse 22. So not available, but only if you're good enough. And not available, but only you know, if you've got to really, really try hard and you're very zealous. No, the gospel is designed for all because all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God, the glory of God, not our first place passion. It's not the center of the what and why we live. So by our words and thoughts and deeds and silence, we defame him. So as I said last time, that our independence of God at moments can be absolutely striking. So Paul makes it plain. We are in desperate need of God's righteousness and it's made available to all but only by faith. That was our second heading. And then we ended last time beginning our third heading, God's righteousness is in the gracious provision of Jesus Christ alone. Meaning the source of God's righteousness, which we all need because of all sin, depends entirely on God and is revealed only in the gospel, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But now, this righteousness from God is designed for all of us because we've all sinned. You see it there, verse 22, there is no difference. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are all justified there, same word as righteous, and are all righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Okay, why faith? One reason is because we cannot weave our own robes of righteousness to cover any of our sin. Even our obedience past our conversion cannot do that. And loved ones, be mindful. This righteousness from God, only received by faith, is our world's greatest need. That's it. So if you don't have a lot of money or a lot of whatever to get to the world, this is what they need. This is where you would pour everything into. And it's still available to all. Now, still under that third heading, God's righteousness in the gracious provision of Jesus Christ alone, there are three huge words which we, we have to work through. And you see them there, we'll almost see them there, justified, verse 24a, redemption, verse 24b, and uh, sacrifice of atonement, and we're going to call it propitiation, more about that in a minute, in verse 25. Now, if you were here last time, you could say like, well, Joe, you walked through justification last time, and I know I did. I'm going to run through it again for two reasons. I thought, what if there were people here that needed to know this, whether they've never heard it before or they had that kind of week 
where they're looking at God and saying, is, is it really true? Is the gospel really true? I mean, based on all that I've done, can I really truly be forgiven? Because justification can be so unsettling to the religious person and the moralist, right? Because they're all like, you know, I pay, I'm paying, why can't they? Right? I'm doing, why can't they do? You remember the parable of the workers? I've been here since 6 a.m., working hard. They came a few moments before quitting time, and they get paid the same? What are you doing? Grace. Grace. Justification is not merely to cancel the punishment, but to declare there is no justification for the punishment at all. So it's more than pardon. It's the declaration that no ground for the infliction of punishment exists at all. In other words, in justification, there's no evidence that we have been guilty of any sin. Grace. Grace. Remember the song, there's nothing too dirty that you can't make worthy. You wash me in mercy. I am clean. Period. Full stop. Forever. And you would understand how only a person's pride would get in the way or a person comparing themselves to others and not to God. And a person doing that would say, well, I'm not like them. You know, I might need pardon, but I only need a wee bit of pardon. And then behave that way in the totality of their life. If you want to know what that's like, look at the Gospels and look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and some of the religious people there. Then, then you'll get a good picture. But there's more than justification. There are no liabilities. There's no claims against you. No debt needs to be paid. Nothing is coming back to haunt you. Remember? Nothing is coming back to haunt you. All that family curse stuff, you know, the, shut it down if you're a Christian. It's been paid. The debt is paid. You owe God nothing that he commands to be righteous as a condition of our salvation because it has been graciously fulfilled. A gift that he gives but only through faith. Righteousness, justification is a declared legal standing that is a result of the perfect behavior and obedience of Jesus Christ alone, which is why we make so much of Christ and love him and serve him and obey him with great strength. Remember that little quote that I told you that my wife wrote for me a few months ago? Never stop thinking about the crucified, risen Christ. Never. That's the first word, justification. New word, redemption. And so here Paul explains what, what happens under the new covenant. Verse 24, do you see it? Are justified freely. And by the way, that word means given and therefore not acquired by merit or by our entitlement. In other words, what I'm going to explain, you can't earn this and you don't deserve this. We are justified freely, can't earn it, don't deserve it, by his grace, through the redemption, that's our word, that came by Christ Jesus. So redemption is a word that Paul took from the marketplace. Justification from the legal world, uh, redemption from the marketplace. This is what it means. In the ancient world, sometimes a person would become a slave because they had borrowed money and they couldn't pay it back. And there was no bankruptcy laws to protect people. So the only option available was either sell yourself as a slave or in some cases you could sell yourself and your family as a slave to the person that you owe money to. So some slaves became slaves because of war, but some because of economics. However, 
what if the slave had a very rich friend who heard about the situation and they wanted the slave to be free, so they wanted to free them. Well, there was a standard practice in the ancient world at that time for doing that, and this is what it was. First, the rich friend would go to the nearest pagan temple, pay the price or pay the debt of the slave, plus a little bit more to the temple priest, and then the ownership of the slave would be transferred, listen carefully, from the person the slave was indebted to to the local pagan god, whoever it was, which meant for all practical purposes, you were free from your debt and you were really free because the pagan god didn't exist. Thus, you have been redeemed from a position of a slave to a free person, right? So, okay, big debt, someone else pays it, you go free. Meaning when the first readers of Romans would read this word, they would know redemption meant liberation with a payment of price. There it is. Liberation with a payment of price. Now, there's more to that, and Romans will jump all over that, that we belong to God now. We are purchased by God. But listen, that's a happy thing. That's not a threat. There's nothing to be sad about that or terrible or burdensome. But for now, Paul's interest is redemption is liberation with the payment of price. That's the emphasis. And here in Romans 3, verse 24, we're told we are justified, righteous, freely, can't earn it, don't deserve it, by his grace, achieved through the redemption, the liberation of sin, achieved by Jesus Christ, who paid a price for us to be set free. That's redemption. Okay? What price was paid and to who was it paid? That's our third word there. Verse 25, propitiation. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, propitiation through the shedding of his blood. Now, what I'm going to tell you is important, and I, don't, I only tell you these things because I think they will help you. Somewhere around the 1930s, most English Bible translations use the word propitiation here in verse 25. If you have like a King James version, the older King James, I think it might use it, but most translations before 1930s use the word propitiation. But this is what happened. There was a professor, Cambridge University, named C.H. Dodd. He was a Christian, but he hated that word propitiation. And because of it, he had such influence that a lot of people, a lot of translations determined to, to change it. And what he said, and his, his strength behind what he said was, in the pagan world, this is important, in the pagan world, the way propitiation works was like this. You are the worshiper, and you need something from the gods. So let's say you're going to open up your business and you want the business God, whoever he or she is, to give you success. And therefore you go and you propitiate to the God. You, you make some sacrifice so that the God will be favorable to you. So that once you make the sacrifice and offering to the God, it's like pennies from heaven. Because the intent of your propitiation is to make the God propitious, make him favorable towards you because you want that God's favor. You want him or her working for you and you want them on your side. So we, the worshiper, would offer a propitiating sacrifice in order that the business God looks down on us with favor towards our enterprise so that we can be successful. That's how it worked in the ancient world. That was propitiation. But Dodd said, that's not how it works in the Christian world. Because... How can we speak of a propitiating God trying to gain his favor if John 3.16 says, you know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So God says, listen, if, 
if God already loved us that he gave his son, how can God not already be favorable towards us because he's already given us his son? So how can you think that the son's death makes God favorable towards us when he already is? So he says, verse 25, God doesn't mean propitiation, but he means the word expiation. And expiation has the idea of the object of sin, and it means the canceling of something, and in this case, sin. So, in propitiation, the sacrifice given makes God favorable towards the person. In expiation, the sacrifice cancels the sin. Now, was he right? Well, clearly the Bible, in the Bible, there's both. There's expiation and there's propitiation at the same time. The sin is canceled and God's anger is averted and he looks on his people with favor because of his own sacrifice. So Dodd's question is not a horrible question. But this is where good theology and biblical interpretation principles help us. Okay, now bear with me. In the pagan world, they are the ones trying to make the gods favorable to them by their sacrifice. Which, by the way, if you're doing this with God now, you, you should stop. You cannot earn God's favor by your good deeds, by your works, or your sacrifices, or your gifts. We cannot remove his wrath on our sin by our good deeds, by our works, by our, by our sacrifices and gifts. Nor do we need to. And don't listen to people who, who will tell you that's what you need to do because what that does, it turns Christianity into a form of commercialism where you're bribing and you're coercing God. You're, you're strong-arming God in essence. So God, I did this, so you have to. God, you have to do that. I did this, so brother or sister, because you don't have it, what I have because of what I did, obviously you didn't do it. A long time ago, which is getting longer and longer now, when I was pastoring a church in Tennessee, within the first couple of years, this, this older gentleman, good standing, good Christian man, he came up to me in tears. And he said to me, he said, here it goes. We did this when the kids were growing up. We did that when the kids were growing up. We gave God this when the kids were growing up. And we served God when the kids were growing up. And we took them and we went there and we attended now look at my daughter. Hopefully in a really nice way, I asked him, was that the reason why you did all that stuff? So was it work? Or was it worship? As a Christian, were you bargaining with God? Okay, back to Dodd's concern. In the pagan world, we are the ones trying to make God favorable to us by our sacrifice. So Dodd says, verse 25, you see it there? God is the one who's putting forth the sacrifice. God, verse 25, puts forth Christ. Dodd asks, and how can God's sacrifice be thought of as a propitiation because God already loves the world by giving his son? Well, the replies came swift and they came numerous and it was pretty simple. When you read the Old Testament, and you read about propitiation, it's always used in the context of God's wrath, which is you offer a sacrifice, then it turns away God's wrath. It's the same here in this portion of Romans. The context here begins where? Romans 1.18. That sets the ball rolling. There is a God of wrath. 
over people's sins. Everybody sins. And it hangs all over these verses. And what we need to understand then is God stands over humanity in wrath because he's holy and we are rebels. However, God also stands over humanity in love because he is a God of grace. He is the God of all grace. And he does so both at the same time at the cross. Picture that. God stands over humanity in wrath. Jesus is, is our substitute for us, taking all the wrath at the cross. The Bible speaks of God's wrath some 600 times because we've sinned against God, but he also stands over us in love because that is who God is. God is love. 1 John 4, 7. So remember at the beginning of the sermon we said if God was only a God of justice, right? Justice, that unbiased, correct sentencing of what is due based on what has been done. If that was God's only attribute, then the Bible would be incredibly short. Human history, our human history would be incredibly short. So think then, propitiation means that God's wrath has been turned away by a payment of the penalty of sin and Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross alone puts the wrath of God, all of it, away. Past sins, current sins, future sins. Which means God's wrath is not just on human sin, but on human beings because of our sin apart from Christ. And yet, and yet, he still loves the world. How do we know God loves the world? Well, one reason is that he gave the world his son. Listen to Ephesians 2, verses 3 and following. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And you could add, because of his great love. And because he loves us, God, to remove his wrath, God himself propitiates. He sets forth the sacrifice, his son. Verse 25, God presented Christ and he did it publicly. Because you see that word presented in verse 25? It means literally publicly displayed. Now think with me. This means for, for good and splendid reasons at the cross, God is not hiding his anger, nor is God hiding his love. It is put perfectly to public record and to public display. And this is what theologians call, it's the scandal of the cross. It's the result of our sin. It's the exclusive nature of the gospel. It's, it's God's great and lavish love for us. It's justice, and it's justice satisfied. And it's all we need. Listen to your Bible again. 1 Peter 1.18 For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. Now I want you to think with me. Those of us who speak to people about Jesus Christ, we probably use this illustration. A person has done wrong. It's set, he's set before the judge. The judge finds the person rightly guilty and the judge sets the punishment and let's say it's financial, let's say it's $100,000 but then the judge steps down and she removes her robe and she writes out a personal check to pay the guilty person's fine 
And that person is set free. Okay, that's a great illustration, but it's not great enough. It, doesn't get the, it does get across the notion that, that Jesus has come to pay our debt, the penal substitution, that he, he substitutes himself. But there's more. Think. In our world, our judges represent a system. So when you commit a crime, you're not specifically sitting against the judge, but you're sitting against the state or the law or people or government. But you're not sitting specifically against the judge. In fact, if you did sin against the judge, what would the judge do? She would recuse herself so that she's not part of the offense, meaning the judge is not coming along as the offended party because she can't be in the courtroom pronouncing the judgment on an offense which was done to her. That's how our system works. So again, if the person does wrong, the judge gives a sentence per our first illustration, but what if the judge was the offended party? If the crime was committed against her, she recuses herself and she removes herself from the courtroom. But with God, God is always the offended party. And every sin which has ever been committed or will ever be committed, a big sin, small sin, if there can be such a thing, every sin must be punished because God is always the offended party. So when we lie to a person, when we gossip and slander or rage against a person, yes, we've sinned against them, but ultimately God is the offended party. So remember Psalm 51 it's a beautiful psalm. A much repented David wrote the psalm. Remember what happened? He, he slept with another man's wife, Bathsheba. And he had that devilish plan, you know, and, and had her husband basically murdered and he used the military to accomplish his purposes and to cover up his sin. And then he's confronted by God's man, Nathan, a prophet. And he just lays it all down for David and he says, David, you are the man. Now, do you remember what David said in, in repentance in Psalm 51? He said, against you and you only have I sinned and have done this evil in your sight. Now, on one level, that isn't totally true in this sense. He sinned against Bathsheba. He seduced her. He sinned against the husband, slept with his wife, lied to him, and he had him murdered. He sinned against his own family because he betrayed them. He sinned against the military because he corrupted them and used them. He sinned against the people, his own people, because he was their king. But he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And you see, that's what makes sin so vile, so, so dirty, so wretched, so damnable. God is the most offended party when we sin. So if we truly love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, we would never ever commit any sin. But we do. God is the offended party. If we cheat others, buying, selling, whatever, God is still the most offended party. If we cheat on our spouse, God is the most offended party. If we have a short fuse and it's constantly tearing people down, God is the most offended party. If our pride is puffing itself up, if we're so strong-willed that we can use it to manipulate things wrongly to our favor and not extend grace to others, God is the most offended party. God stands over us in his judgment and that wrath has to be put aside. We have no hope to do it ourselves. It has to be achieved if we are to be declared righteous in God's sight. And so the way this all happens, Paul says, is propitiation. God pays your offense against him. 
then God is satisfied. Verse 24, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And the way it's done, you see it there. God put Jesus in public display to show his wrath and to show his love. Christ is a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, but only received by faith. Only received by faith. Final word then. Phrase. Number four, God's righteousness is demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we'll be very brief. Verse 25, God did this to demonstrate his justice, his righteousness, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. We should say, thank God for that. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So when you think of the cross, we think of it as a demonstration of God's love. Beautiful. But there's more. Paul writes here, the cross is also, is a demonstration of God's justice and God's patience, his forbearance, his long-suffering. And so what are the sins which are committed beforehand that Paul writes of that God never fully punished? Well, God's character is such that all the sins committed in the old covenant, he just passed over them. Yeah, yeah he gave sometimes temporal judgment. It wasn't, but it wasn't final or ultimate judgment. He never poured out his full wrath on them like he did on his son, even though they deserved it. He passed over them. Verse 25, his forbearance, patient endurance. This is a beautiful aspect of God. Acts 17, 30, Paul tells the intelligentsia of his day, God overlooked your offense, but now, but now, he says, the cross is preached. You need to repent. So in Christ, not only, um, he may, not only may God justify us, but he's also just. He's righteous Why he's doing it. Because his intention was at the cross, he would punish sin by punishing his son to death. Think of that. Punishing his son to death for our sin. So all that wrath being stored up was so that the punishment would be placed on Christ. <laughs> what do you do with that? That's just definitely not human. So sometimes people say, maybe you said this, why can't God just forgive me of my sin? I mean, can he? I mean, why all this blood and the sacrifice and the five wounds, why doesn't he just say, forgiven? And verse 25 and 26 is the passage which answers that question. So I want you to think with me. Let's say God said flatly to Stalin, oh, I forgive you. No, no biggie, no sentencing, nothing. 20 million mur- people murdered under your, uh, under your rule and reign. Forgiven. That's my job. I'm God. I forgive people. Ask yourself this question. Would that make God someone we would esteem? To just let that kind of sin go. Would it, make, would it make us just want to sing God's praise and worship God and, and, and lay our life at his feet? I wouldn't. But what applies to Stalin applies to me and applies to you. If God didn't care about sin, then he could just be passing out forgiveness passes freely to anybody. And if God didn't care about sin, us as mere humans we would be prone to favoritism on who we will forgive and who we will not forgive. I mean, is it not true that it's easy for us sometimes to forgive a certain kind of person and not forgive some, some other kind of person? Let's be honest. 
But he does care about sin. So in the fullness of time, he sends the only remedy, his son. 1, verse 26a, to demonstrate his justice, his rightness. Sin has a debt. It will be paid. That is right. And 2, to demonstrate justification for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Their debt is paid. So much so that it's no longer on your record. Ever. Ever. Just justified. There's a song that I told you about a long, long time ago. The first line is, you are clean before God. In me, not one blemish does he see. But do you know what the refrain says? Oh, why do you wait so long to learn such a loving song? Do you know what they're saying? Why, why do you wait so long to enjoy the, the beauty of the good news? The fact that you're justified. Propitiation and, and, and redemption and, and justification. And, and to know that we're free and now we belong to God and everything changes. Why do you wait so long to learn such a loving song? Let's end it like this. We are pardoned only through Christ's blood. We are justified only through Christ's blood. We have God's favor on our life only through Christ's blood. Any hope of sanctification, which is our Christian privilege, is only through Christ's blood. When, when we will be perfected, glorified, when that happens, only through Christ's blood. Faith in all of that. And thus Jesus Christ is magnified. And wherever Jesus Christ is magnified, things are safe. And verse 27, you see it there? There'll be no boasting. No one loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. Here's my question to you, Christian. What do you do when you don't? Do you rely on your past performance? Or do you rely on Christ's righteousness? When you don't do that, do you draw, does your sin drive you to Jesus? Or does it drive you from Jesus? And when you do love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, do you flex? Look at me. Or do you worship? Do you worship the God who sent his son to save us? Let's pray. And as I'm praying, if those who will be um, coming forward, well, actually, excuse me, we have a song to sing. And at the end of the song, if those who will be coming to serve communion, if you can make your way to the table, that'd be perfect. God and Father, it's, it's been said many times that the highest privilege that we have as fathers and mothers is to watch our children grow. And I say that because you're our Father in heaven. And we thank you that because of your grace, we have this great gift, not only of satisfaction, but sanctification. And so we thank you that you are for us in that. And even as you want us to grow, you still want us to grow in depth of understanding of our sin and the depth of understanding of what it took for Christ to pay the debt of our sin. And to grow in our understanding so that we might enjoy it 
and apply it to ourselves, to our brothers and sisters, and of course, God, to our relationship with you. Please win every heart in this room to the praise of your glory. Amen.